Hello, wise and wicked friends. This is a story of pure evil. She is known as the female Hannibal Lecter, and she was the first woman in Australian history to be sent to prison for life without parole. This is the story of the cannibal killer, Catherine Knight. Welcome back to season two of The Wise and the Wicked. My name is KJ. I have started this podcast as a means to educate myself and whoever feels like listening to me harping on about different types of people and their impact on society. This means we look at all things crime, history, the problematic ones and the problem solvers. This season, we are going to do some things a little differently. We are looking into one topic and each episode will cover a different story of that topic. The focus of this season is going to be female killers. Each episode we will take a deep dive into a known case of a female killer and this week we are travelling all the way to Australia to have a look at a horrendous case. This woman was the first in Australia's history to be sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. This is the story of Catherine Knight. Now, buckle up buddies, because this one is rough. We have everything in the story. This episode includes domestic abuse, sexual abuse, animal abuse, child abuse, graphic descriptions, graphic dialogue, murder and some cannibalism. Safe to say, listener discretion is very much advised. So let's get cracking. Catherine Knight was born on the 24th of October 1955. She was one of a set of twin girls born to parents Barbara and Ken. So Barbara, Catherine's mother, was originally from Aberdeen in New South Wales. Before Catherine was born, Barbara was married to a man named Jack Rowan. Barbara and Jack lived in Tenterfield in New South Wales and together they had four children. During this marriage, Barbara had an affair with a man named Ken Knight, a co-worker of her husband's. Now, Tenterfield at this time was really small and gossip spread like a bad smell. So word got out about Barbie and Ken and they had to get out of there. They decided to go to a town called Moray, which is where Barbara had some family members. Soon thereafter, they realised that Barbara was pregnant with Ken's child. This time, she was pregnant with twins. So none of the four children that she had had with her relationship to Jack actually moved to Moray with her at first. I couldn't really figure out why, but they were actually separated. So two of the children remained with the father, Jack, in Tenterfield, and two would move in with an aunt in Sydney. And as we said then, the twin girls were born on the 24th of October in 1955. A few years later, Barbara's husband, Jack, passed away, and their two children that had lived with him moved into the Knight family home. Soon followed then by the other two sons that had been living in Sydney. 
to make a complicated story uncomplicated, essentially now, the household consisted of Barbara, Ken, twin girls, Catherine and Joy, and the four other children that Barbara had from her previous marriage. So, two parents, six kids in total. Ken Knight was, by all accounts, absolutely horrible. He was abusive, he struggled with alcohol addiction, and he was just an alright bad man. Ken worked as an abattoir slaughterman, and work at this time was scarce. So in order to find work for himself, he had to travel. And this meant, with Barbara and six children in tow, they travelled all around Queensland and New South Wales looking for work. When work was found, this meant a 12-hour back-breaking shift for Ken. It wasn't until 1969 that Ken found steady work in Aberdeen, in the local abattoir. And this is where the family would then settle. So, life with Ken Knight as a father was not a nice one at all. Ken was very, very violent, very angry and very abusive. He also abused alcohol. He would rape and beat Barbara and their children openly, any chance he got. Barbara would openly talk about these rapes with her children also, which of course was insanely traumatic. Catherine herself became a victim of sexual abuse, not only by the hands of her father, but by other family members too. Catherine claimed that this abuse went on consistently until she was around 11. As you can imagine, this was the beginning of her very violent life. Catherine, in some respects, was a very good child. She would help her mother around the house and was always happy to sit and play with her dolls. The older she got, though, the more she had what can only be described as fits of blinding rage. And these would be in response to pretty minor annoyances. Unsurprisingly, when she went to school, she became a bully and she would pick on anybody she could. She even attacked a child in her school one day with a knife and when a teacher stepped in to break it up, the teacher got injured. Strangely enough, when Catherine wasn't in a violent rage, she was actually a good student and she got really good grades and she apparently even won awards for good behaviour. Catherine didn't last long in school though and at the age of 15 she dropped out. She went on looking for work and she did find some odd jobs here and there before she landed her quote dream job which was working in the abattoir where her father Ken worked. When she started off her job was to remove the organs from the animals in the slaughterhouse. A job that scarily she excelled at. She was a complete master with a knife and was very quickly promoted. She took her role in the abattoir very seriously and her proudest possession at this time was a collection of her favourite knives. This would become displayed pride of place in her bedroom. A habit she would take throughout her life and claiming this was because they would always be handy if she needed them. Despite her mother claiming that all men are horrible and her own distrust for men, Catherine looked for love. Her first relationship of note was a man named David Kellett. So David Kellett had his own issues, unfortunately. He suffered two majorly traumatic incidents during a previous job that he had. He witnessed the death of a very, very dear friend and he was also then involved in the rescue of a school bus crash where unfortunately six children passed away. 
It appears that as a result of these traumatic events, David suffered from PTSD. And then as a result of this, he became a very heavy drinker in order to cope. This became so bad that he ended up losing his job due to poor work performance. He later found work in the abattoir in Aberdeen, and this is where he met Catherine in 1973. So the two began dating, but it wasn't before long that violence creeped into the relationship. Catherine apparently dominated him. He would consistently get into pub fistfights wherever they would go, and ultimately Catherine would jump in and defend him. Very romantically. Throughout Aberdeen at the time, Catherine was known for her fistfights. She would fight with anyone over any small inconvenience. The following year in 1974, Catherine persuaded David to marry her. Now I'm phrasing it like that because that is exactly how it's phrased everywhere I found it. I think that just kind of gives us a taste of what the relationship was like. And on the wedding day, it kicked off with Catherine and David arriving on a motorbike. And Catherine was driving, David was sitting on the back, completely plastered out of his head. At their arrival, the mother of the bride, Barbara, offered some marriage advice to her soon-to-be son-in-law. David described this interaction as, quote, The old girl said to me, watch out. You better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. And that was her mother talking. She told me she got something loose. She's got a screw loose somewhere. End quote. On their wedding night, Catherine reportedly tried to strangle David. She claims this was because he didn't perform sexually to her satisfaction. David was able to fight Catherine off at this point, and even though she attempted to take his life on the first night of their marriage, the marriage would last for 10 years. It was a very, very abusive and very unstable relationship. Two years into their marriage, Catherine became pregnant with their first child. One night, David was home late as he was playing in the finals of a local dart competition. Catherine was very heavily pregnant at the time, and David being late made her aggressively enraged. As a result of him not being home at the time that Catherine wanted, she took all of his clothes and shoes and set them on fire. When David arrived home, the argument erupted, and Catherine retaliated by hitting him over the head with a frying pan. David was able to flee the scene in fear for his life and ended up seeking refuge in a neighbor's house. Said neighbor called the police and later David was treated for a very badly fractured skull. Police encouraged David to press charges, but apparently Catherine managed to talk him out of it. David apparently had multiple affairs during this marriage and shortly after the birth of their first child, David left Catherine for another woman and moved to Queensland with her. In retaliation, Catherine was seen violently pushing their newborn baby down the main street in Aberdeen. She was reportedly throwing the pram violently from side to side. The police were called and Catherine and the baby were taken to a nearby hospital for treatment. It was here that Catherine was diagnosed with severe postpartum depression and she was kept in for several weeks recovering. Shortly after her release, 
Catherine placed her now two-month-old child on a railway line and left the child there. Thankfully, a passerby saw the child and saved them before they could get hurt. And again, Catherine was taken to hospital for treatment. She signed herself out the next day. Catherine decided she wanted to do all she could to get to David. She had no means of transport, however, so she'd need to figure out how to get to Queensland. She ended up finding a random woman who was driving a car and she threatened her by slashing her in the face with one of her beloved knives and demanding that this woman drove her to Queensland so she could find David. The woman made a narrow escape at a service station and again the police were called. By the time they arrived, Catherine had taken a small child hostage and was threatening him. The police were able to disarm Catherine, thankfully. The child was not hurt and Catherine was taken back to hospital for treatment. This time, she was taken to a psychiatric hospital. Here, Catherine told a nurse of all of her plans. She claimed that she wanted to kill the mechanic first. The mechanic that fixed David's car, as this allowed him to leave her in the first place. She stated then that she wanted to go to Queensland and she planned to kill both David and his mother. David was informed of the incident and the fact that Catherine was being held in a psychiatric unit. He left his girlfriend in Queensland and moved back to Aberdeen to support Catherine. Catherine was released three months later, so this is now August in 1976, and she was released into the care of David and his mother. Once the couple began living together, they started up their relationship again. Four years later, the couple had their second child. Catherine returned to work at the abattoir, and life went back to somewhat normal. Well, their version of normal. And this was until Catherine injured her back and she could no longer work. She was put on disability leave. Sometime in 1984, Catherine decided to leave David. I couldn't really find out exactly what ultimately ended the relationship after all this time, but I guess Catherine just was finished and she decided she wanted something new. So herself and her now two children were giving housing commission house in Aberdeen, which I'm assuming is like a sort of council house. The next man in her life was another David, David Saunders. I guess she has a thing for Davids. I'm going to call him Saunders for ease. So Saunders was 38 when he met Catherine. They dated for a few months before he moved into Catherine's house with her two children. He did keep his old apartment. Catherine developed the same tendencies she had in her previous relationship. She would get really, really jealous and pick fights when Saunders wasn't around. Catherine would kick him out of the house on a regular basis and he would go back to his own place. A few days later, she would go to him, tail between her legs, and beg him to forgive her and come back to her. This pattern repeated itself over and over. She would also repeatedly threaten him and abuse him. After one particularly nasty fight, Catherine killed Saunders' dog that he had only recently got claiming that if she cheated on him, this exact thing would happen to him. Other fights ended with Catherine knocking Saunders unconscious with various household items. In June 1988, Catherine gave birth to her third child. 
so herself and Saunders' first child. After this, Saunders put a deposit down on a house for their growing family. This house was decorated within an inch of its life. There was no space, including the ceiling that was left uncovered. Catherine decorated this house with animal skins, skulls, animal traps, leather jackets, machetes, pitchforks, you name it, Catherine put it on the wall. Saunders would not live in this house for very long though. After one of their infamous arguments, Catherine cut up all of his clothes and when he fought back, she hit Saunders in the head with an iron and stabbed him with a pair of scissors. This was the last straw for Saunders and he soon took out service leave from work and went into hiding to get away from Catherine. Catherine spent the following few months looking for him with no luck. After a while, Saunders returned because he really wanted to see their child again. And on his return, Catherine went to the police and claimed that he had been abusing her and she was terrified of Saunders. They issued her and her children with a restraining order against him. He was no longer allowed to see his child. Catherine's romantic relationships continued pretty much in a very similar pattern. She met another man in that also worked in the abattoir and his name is John Chillingworth. There wasn't much about their relationship other than the fact that they were together for three years and like the others, it was very, very aggressive and very abusive. Catherine had another child by this new man and after three years, she had left him for a man she was having an affair with. This was a pattern with Catherine. She would meet a man, have a child, have an affair, then leave with a hell of a lot of violence and jealous rages in the middle. The man that she was cheating on John Chillingworth with was a man named John Price. So John Price was a little bit different to the men that she had been dating before. John was born on the 4th of April, 1955. He was the oldest of six children. John left school at a young age and worked very hard all of his life. He was very, very well liked and very hardworking. At a young age, John married a woman by the name of Colleen. They had a 15 year long marriage and three healthy children. Reports say that when this marriage ended, it was very amicable and they remained close. Catherine and John met in a local pub in Aberdeen and started dating soon after. The relationship started off well and they got along great. Catherine did have a reputation and John was aware of it, but they started their life together nonetheless. They ended up moving in together in 1995. John's children really liked Catherine and at this stage of their lives, life was good. John was making good money. They were getting along great. It was a nice life. Soon the veil began to fall and Catherine slipped back into her jealous and angry ways. Arguments began to happen more and more, and Catherine began to get deeply paranoid that John was cheating on her. Due to these arguments, the couple would break up and make up very frequently. One recurring argument that the couple would have was that John didn't want to marry Catherine. He also insisted on them both keeping their separate properties, even if they lived together in one of them. In retaliation to one argument about getting married, Catherine videotaped items that he, quote, stole from work and sent them to his boss. 
these apparent stolen items were meaningless out-of-date medical supplies that John had actually scavenged from the rubbish. Either way, his boss was not impressed and John was fired. He lost his job that he had had for 17 years. The same day, John kicked Catherine out of the house. A few months later, John started their relationship up again, much to his friends and loved ones' disapproval. Although now he refused for her to live with him full time, their fighting began more and more, and it was more violent and more frequent. John's loved ones begged him not to be with her, and many even stated that as long as she was in his life, they wouldn't be. In February 2000, after a series of very serious assaults, John was finally fed up. He kicked Catherine out of the house yet again. He was feeling pretty desperate to get out of this relationship, but as is the case for many victims of domestic abuse, he was not really sure how to do it. No matter what he did or where he went or what he said, she would weasel her way back into his life and undoubtedly the violence would start again. On the morning of the 29th of February 2000, John stopped into the magistrate's court local to him on his way into work and took out a restraining order against Catherine. This was to protect both himself and his children. The concern at this time now was for her reaction when she found out about the restraining order. What was she going to do in retaliation? When John arrived to work later that same day, he told his co-workers about the restraining order. He also explained how scared he was and he was very, very worried for his safety and the safety of his children. Stating that if he didn't come back into work, he thought it was because Catherine would have killed him. His co-workers pleaded with him not to return home that day, but John said he was worried for his children so he had to go there and see if they were okay. When John arrived home that evening after work, he found that nobody was there. Catherine was not there and neither were his children. It turned out that Catherine had been there and she sent John's children away to their friends' houses for a sleepover. Then she had gone home herself. Not really wanting to be home alone, John went to a neighbor's house to hang out for the evening. He stayed there until 11 p.m. and returned home to go to bed. Shortly after John fell asleep, Catherine let herself into the house, sat in the living room and watched TV for a bit. Then she took a shower, hopped into bed with John and woke him up. They didn't argue at this stage. They didn't shout. They didn't, there was no violence. Instead, they had a cuddle, they had sex and they both went to sleep. The following morning, a neighbour became concerned that John's car was still in the driveway when he was usually at work. As John was usually very reliable and hardworking, his boss also became concerned that he didn't show up to work that morning. He sent over one of John's co-workers to check on him. Both the neighbour and the co-worker began to knock on the door, then at the windows to see if they could see any sign of movement in the house. There was none. They soon noticed that there was some blood marks on the front door. With this, the pair wasted no time in calling the police and raised the alarm. The police who were on duty that morning that came to the house have been interviewed many times. To this day, the scene is known as one of the most gruesome crime scenes in Australian history. The following is an extract of the first reaction of the officers on duty that morning. They said, quote, 
We went around the back, broke through the back door. As we went in, I saw straight ahead of me what I thought was a curtain. There was something hanging, blocking my entry into the hallway of the house. I thought it looked like some sort of blanket or covering that had been placed on the archway. I remember I used my left hand to push it to the side. Immediately I felt coldness coming on my left side. I looked down at my left arm. It was completely covered in blood. I realised it was a human pelt. It was the skin minus the head. A full skin hanging from the doorframe. I looked past it and I saw the torso lying on the floor without a head. There was blood everywhere. A line of blood down the hallway and out to the kitchen. There was a pot on the stove. I think I might have turned to Scotty and said, I'll give you one guess where the head is. After the police discovered this horrible scene, they realised they could hear snoring coming from one of the bedrooms in the house. There they found Catherine in a comatose state on the bed. She had taken copious amounts of pills. Some speculate that she had tried to take her own life. The police tried to talk to Catherine, but she was really groggy and they couldn't make any sense out of what she was trying to say. They called the ambulance. It was clear that Catherine was not physically injured in any way. She was taken to a nearby psychiatric hospital for treatment. The other major concern at this stage was for Catherine's children and John's children's well-being. The police were sent out looking for them. Thankfully, they were found safe and sound. The next person to the scene was the crime scene officer, Mazio. During his interview, he said, quote, We came in through the laundry at the back of the premises, and there was an aroma. It was, well, it was quite a macabre thing. It was a sweet odour, a nice odour, as if mum was cooking a stew. We walked inside and one of the first things you see is Mr. Price's skin, or pelt, hanging from the doorframe, from a meat hook. Further into the kitchen you could see blood staining on certain items, and then into the lounge room. Further down the hallway there was blood going into the bedrooms. You could see where, I think, Mr. Price had gone for a light switch. There was blood staining on the light switch and on the wall. As you got towards the lounge room, the bloodstains were getting heavier and heavier. So the crime scene officer goes into a lot more detail here, but I'm actually going to spare you. I think you get the gist. The more John tried to escape, the more Catherine went for him, and eventually he succumbed to his injuries and passed away. Then Catherine started to take the body apart. First the skin, then the head. It wasn't until the crime scene investigator took the lid off the pot of the stove that it was confirmed where the head was. The officer continued, quote, This was a statement. She cut the glutinous maximus off his backside. It's a big muscle. She cut it into five different steaks and she cooked them, baked them in the oven. Two of them were on one plate, two on another plate. Then the fifth was out for a dog, I believe. It wasn't touched. But the meals 
They were like a trophy. They had the names of each person who was supposed to get them. The meals that Catherine had placed on the tables were complete with meat and vegetables. The table was set very neatly and the names that were placed next to the meals were two of John's children's names. The crime scene investigator continued to gather evidence from the crime and they tried to put the rest of the pieces of the puzzle together. Evidence showed how the horrendous crime took place. When John had fallen back asleep, Catherine took one of her butcher knives and stabbed him. At some point during the stabbing, John woke up, tried to turn on the light and escape. Catherine chased him throughout the house, overpowered him and took his life. In total, Catherine stabbed John Price 37 times, both in the front and the back of his body. At some point during the crime, Catherine showered, cleaned herself up, drove herself to the local town and took out $1,000 out of an ATM using John's card. This money was never recovered. There was a special bedside questioning conducted for Catherine in the hospital that she was being held in. During the interview, Catherine admitted to killing John, but she claimed she had zero recollection of the entire crime. She kept repeating the words, I don't remember anything. She claimed she had amnesia. Later, it was confirmed that Catherine and her lawyers were planning on using the defence of battered wife syndrome. Catherine claimed that this she had been beaten in most of the relationships she had been in, and John was no exception. She claimed that she had committed the crime in self-defence after years of being a victim of horrific domestic abuse. Now, we all know that battered wife syndrome is very real and very dangerous, and there are many, many confirmed cases of this. But we also know Catherine is not one of these. And as soon as the investigators began to look into Catherine and her background, they found out, yes, every relationship had been very violent, and she was the root of all of the violence. Catherine was examined by various psychologists. Through this, she was diagnosed with severe personality disorder. However, personality disorder is not considered a psychiatric illness, and therefore it was not the cause of her crimes. Her violence and her abuse were part of who she was, part of her makeup, and part of her enjoyed it. All of her claims of amnesia were soon dismissed and she was deemed entirely responsible for her crimes. It also became clear that this crime was entirely premeditated. At the start of the trial, Catherine pleaded not guilty. Soon after the trial began, she changed her plea to guilty, shocking everyone. The judge ruling over the trial was Justice Barry O'Keefe. He described Catherine as small and unimpressive. At a later interview, he stated, quote, I was somewhat nervous about this. I was concerned that if I took the plea of guilty, sentenced her, she would then appeal to the Court of Criminal Appeal and say that she was insane at the time she made the plea of guilty. I decided I should get a court expert to examine her and the psychiatrist came to the exact same conclusion as the other psychiatrist that had seen her. Namely, that she was not insane. She was quite sane and she was a bad woman. 
Throughout the whole of the evidence, it didn't matter what the witness said. She didn't look at the witness. It didn't matter what the photograph or the video was. She didn't look at it. She sat looking straight ahead, absolutely impassive. There was never a sign on her face, any reaction to any of the evidence. The same judge ruled that she was manipulative and calculated. The crimes she committed were premeditated and she acted in pure evil. None of the displays that she had put on in court made anybody change their minds about her. It was all an act. She openly admitted prior to the crime that she was going to kill John. And she even stated that she would get away with it because she'd be able to convince anyone that she was mad. The judge found her to be vengeful, violent and extremely dangerous to society. As a result, Catherine Knight became the first woman in Australia's history to be sent to prison without parole for the remainder of her natural life. Upon the sentencing, Justice Barry O'Keefe said, quote, To sentence any person to life imprisonment is a big thing. To sentence a woman to life imprisonment is an even bigger thing. This was as bad as a case of you got, so she had to go to jail for the rest of her life. She had shown no remorse. She hadn't acknowledged that she had any problem at all. Such a person, if released, is not unlikely to do the same again. There's a real prospect of it. In June 2006, Catherine appealed her life sentence, claiming that this sentence was too harsh. This appeal was immediately dismissed by Justice McClellan, stating, quote, This was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation in any civilised society. Catherine Knight remains in prison to this day. She was never given any explanation for what she did or why she did it and she has never shown any remorse. So that is the horrendous story of Catherine Knight. I would love to hear your opinions as always, so feel free to DM me or comment and stay tuned for the next episode in two weeks' time. Thank you. Bye.